0: Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole Nisbommer-Naflik. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole.
1: figure out where to focus in the first place. This is a question that's posed to me pretty frequently. I spend a lot of time writing and teaching about how to communicate effectively with data, and certainly one very important of that process is knowing what exactly it is you want to communicate. One way to get there is to ask good questions. We're going to talk about that today, but first, a quick personal anecdote. My oldest child is six. And he's clever. I can remember when he was younger, he would pose very direct questions. For example, can I have a dessert? Now that's a yes or no question, right? Yes ends in delight and no in disappointment. No more conversation after that. But this evolved over time. The next evolution in his way of asking questions was slightly better positioning. Mom, if I finish dinner, can I have a dessert? So now, he's volunteering something he knows that I would like to see happen in order to try to make what he would like to see happen more likely. smarter, right? But still pretty direct. And remember, I said he's clever. So out of the blue the other day, this is in the afternoon, uh, he makes a statement to me. Mom, you don't like it when I'm sad. Whoa, no, of course I don't like it when you're sad. You like it when I'm happy, right? Well, there's really only one way to answer that question. Of course, dear, I love it when you're happy. That makes me happy. And stepping back, I totally should have seen this coming. And perhaps you can anticipate where this is going. He says to me, well, it would make me so happy if I could have a dessert tonight. If I behave today, eat my dinner. Could that be possible? Wow. So I'm still not a fan of sugar, but I found that to be a pretty compelling buildup from a six-year-old, and certainly a much better way to frame the question. Now, that's not to say we should do exactly that when analyzing data, frame our question to be more likely to get the answer, what we want. Quite the opposite, in fact. Rather, this is to emphasize how being smart and robust in the way that we ask ourselves and others' questions can help us frame our analytical work. Let's consider the question I began with. How do you figure out where to focus in the first place? Today, we're going to talk about five questions you can ask yourself or others when exploring data, and five smart questions to ask as you prepare to explain that data to others. So Let's start talking about analyzing or exploring our data. One smart question to ask yourself is, is my summary statistic hiding something interesting? Right? So we often summarize data. We use averages, or we combine things into groups and categories. This is important to do because data, when there's a lot of it, is sort of hard to comprehend. So by using these summary statistics or summary metrics, we can turn it into something in aggregate that's easier to talk about or maybe see trends. But there's also a dangerous side of this summarization. Let's talk about a couple of specific metrics and what we might want to look at underneath just to make sure we know our data well enough and aren't making bad conclusions. So let's start with a common one, averages so anytime you're summarizing data in an average you want to look at the underlying distribution because when we are doing things with averages we assume implicitly that the underlying distribution is normal right it has a bell-shaped curve and that's not always the case so you want to look at the distribution to see what's the spread, right? What is the range of values? Are there outliers that may be interesting or help you understand something better? Does the shape look like you expect, right? It's a big number and it is a normal distribution, or is it skewed in some way that might make you cause how you summarize the data different? This is particularly important when you are comparing averages. So when you take two summary statistics and compare them to each other, you lose complete visibility to what those underlying distributions look like. And they often will overlap in ways that can be interesting, right? Where the average might show a difference, but when you look at the underlying distributions, you may see that the difference either isn't exactly what you thought it was going to be, or there might be something interesting in the overlap that causes you to talk about your data differently. In some cases, you may find when you do this next level down and look at the underlying distribution, maybe the average isn't the best summary metric to use, right? There might be some sort of binning or categorization. In some cases, you might look at things by deciles or quartiles or different views that will allow you to see and potentially explain different nuances about the data. And other times, most of the time, probably, actually, Everything is fine, right? It is what you expect it's going to be. The underlying distributions are normal. The overlap is maybe minimal and averages are a fine way to look at things. But anytime you find yourself summarizing in averages, be sure to take a look at the underlying distributions so you can make sure you're saying smart things and making good comparisons couple other less common than average, but that I see enough to weren't talking about specifically, and there'll be probably other ways that you summarize data in your industry that you may be able to relate through these. One is percent favorable. So this is one that's used often in survey analysis, where if you consider a Likert scale, right, where you have five buckets of potential responses to a survey question, someone can strongly disagree, they can disagree, they may have a neutral category, agree, and strongly agree. So One common way to summarize this across groups is percent favorable, which would be the proportion of people who selected, in this case, agree and strongly agree together uh, out of everybody who completed the survey or everybody who completed that particular question if you're looking at a specific survey item. What can happen here is when you're just looking at percent favorable, you miss other movement that may be happening. Particularly interesting at times can be when you see people shifting from strongly agree to agree right you lose that because you're bucketing those two together you also miss seeing how your neutral category is uh, performing and we'll talk about that a little bit more in the next stat that i talk about but you can have neutrals shifting into negative perceptions that you totally miss if you're uh, just looking at percent favorable and other movement between the categories that can be interesting or telling at times So, like averages, with percent favorable, this doesn't mean that's not a good metric to use. Oftentimes it is, and it simplifies things in a way that allows us to compare across survey items and categories or across other categorical variables, but it's just a reminder to be looking at that next level underneath to make sure we aren't hiding anything interesting when we summarize in this way. Uh, One more metric just to call out specifically is NPS, a Net Promoter Score. This is a metric that's used commonly in voice of customer analytics and NPS so this can be any product or it's used often with apps and such where your customers or your clients rate you on some sort of a scale or rate your service rate your product sometimes it's a five-point scale similar to what we just talked about with the Likert scale or sometimes a ten-point or a hundred-point scale scale itself doesn't matter but what happens is we then bucket people or responses based on how they've answered that or what their numerical ranking is and typically the low category are detractors so those are people not likely to recommend your service or your product or your business to others there's the neutral category and then there's the promoter category at the top so these are the ones that are likely to be talking positively about your brand or your product to others And so NPS, the net promoter score, is the proportion of promoters minus the proportion of detractors. So the higher the number, the better. And having NPS and the way it's consistently calculated means companies can compare themselves with other companies in their industry or their products or over time in ways that can be interesting. The danger is we miss what can potentially sometimes be some interesting underlying movement. Specifically, I've seen cases where you miss what's happening with the neutrals, right? Because you can actually have a case where your net promoter score, your NPS, is going up, right, which is a good thing, but where you have neutrals that are shifting both into the positive buckets, into the promoter buckets, as well as into the detractor bucket. So I saw a case one time where the there was this polarization that was happening pretty extremely over time that you missed when you just looked at NPS. So just another case in point to say, anytime you're summarizing data, just take a look at what's going on underneath to see if your summary stat might be hiding something interesting. Let's move on to another question. Actually, this is another way that we often summarize data, time. So, question number two is what is the appropriate frequency with which to show my data? So, we have a lot of data these days, a lot of things that can collect data all the time, which means we have a lot of different ways to slice data over time and different frequencies with which we can look at our data, right? Hourly, daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, yearly. And so there's always a question of what is going to be the appropriate time frame and frequency of time to aggregate my data. Because you can imagine when you look at daily data for something that has broader drivers underneath, the daily data or the hourly data, this granular level can sometimes look really noisy. And so, if you find yourself looking at a graph where there's up and down and up and down and up and down and it's hard to see what's happening, that can be a case where actually aggregating your data more can make sense. So, if you're dealing with noisy data on a daily basis, try going to weekly. Or noisy weekly data, try going to monthly. Noisy monthly data, sometimes going to a quarterly view can make sense. And what this allows you to sometimes see is where there are overarching trends that are actually harder to isolate and be able to identify in the more granular uh, frequency views of the data. Now, the opposite is also true, right? If you have a nice smooth line as you're looking at your monthly data, chop it up a little more and see if that reveals anything interesting, right? What does it look like if you move to weekly data? Are there interesting commonalities you see from the beginning of the month to the end of the month? Or are there interesting things that happen over weekends or on a particular day of the week? These are things that you miss entirely when you're looking at data that is aggregated on a monthly basis that can sometimes be interesting or telling depending on what you're trying to understand about your data on the topic of time and frequency another way that can sometimes be interesting to look at temporal data or things to be aware of is when there's seasonality so oftentimes we look at data over time where we start with one month and we just go forward month by month by month or quarter by quarter by quarter forward over time Now, if there's any seasonality, it can sometimes be interesting to change your x-axis up. So rather than let's say months over time, you have months of the calendar year, right? January through December. And then what that allows you to do is you may have a line or a bar, depending on what you're looking at for each year of data along that monthly path, because what that allows you to do is see what the year over year change or difference or shape looks like. In some cases, you'll see the lines have similar shapes, which may point to there being some seasonality to the data that's important to understand or communicate. In other cases, you may expect that there is seasonality, that those shapes would look similar and they don't. So It can sometimes help you isolate some interesting things. So I think that's a little bit on the uh, appropriate frequency, right? So the meta point here is when you're looking at data over time, step back and think about what is the right amount of time, right? If you're seeing things stable or things noisy, try looking at it from a different frequency standpoint and see whether that reveals anything interesting. Let's move to another question, uh, another good one when you're analyzing data, which is how do things vary or not by category. So anytime we have data, we typically have a lot of different things that we can use to slice and dice it by. Uh, By region, by product line, by customer type, or part of the business, cohort can sometimes be an interesting way to look at data, where you look at it by uh, uh, line things up by some point in time, right? So it could be the first time someone downloads your product, or it could be, if you're looking at employees analytics, it could be the day that someone starts at your organization you can line people up by that beginning point in time and sometimes see some really interesting things. Is you always want to ask yourself, so if you see something changing at an aggregate level, at a total level, right? Like something company-wide, you want to understand, is it happening everywhere or is it concentrated in one or a couple places? Right? Because that can lead you to prompt different sorts of actions as a result of that. I can think of an analysis that we were doing recently for a client where the original was some bars and a data table and it was some projections looking forward about what markets were going to look like uh, in different regions for this particular product. And and the bar chart, it was it was a little tough to to see what was going on. We could see you know some things going up and some things going down. And when you played with some different views of the data, what you actually saw was the initial forecast that the team had done in aggregate. They'd done two forecasts out over time. And so the initial forecast was actually quite a lot lower than the new updated forecast. But then when you break it down by region, it actually, that that didn't pan out for most of the regions. It was one particular region, I think it was EMEA in this case, that was actually driving everything that you saw in the total. Now, you can imagine how if you never do the split down to what's happening across regions, you may not know that information, right? And you run the risk of making a decision or doing something blanket everywhere without having this next level of insight to really understand the data and influence smarter decisions and actions. So, when you see something happening in aggregate, ask yourself how do things vary across different categories right what are the normal categories used to slice and dice your data do that so that when you go back you can say not only here's what's happening but here's where it's happening more or less or here's what may be driving what we're seeing in aggregate and again can be smarter in then the next steps you recommend as a result of that Another thing that we can do is ask ourselves, where are things different from what we expect? So, when we're analyzing data, particularly if it's in an explorative capacity, right, where we don't have a specific question we're trying to answer, we're just looking at the data to try to see where something noteworthy might be going on. This is a good question to ask yourself, right? Where are things pretty much in line with what I expect, and where are they not? So oftentimes we'll look at a ton of data and in most of the cases, there's nothing interesting going on, right? It's this process of like turning over rocks to see if eventually you find something interesting. Or in our workshops, I'll often liken it to you're hunting for pearls in oysters where you you may have to open up a hundred or several hundred oyster shells to find a pearl or two. The interesting things about our data. You still had to look at all those several hundred oyster shells to find them, and that's part of the process. But we don't need to focus on where things are what they expect most of the time. Rather, it's more interesting to dive into where things are different from what we expect. And so sometimes we'll have really specific things like targets or goals or averages that we're comparing things to in order to be able to identify where things are different from what we expect them to be. Other times, this will just be tacit knowledge and sort of turning the data one way and turning it another way and seeing what interesting things jump out. And it's where things are different from what we expect, and that's where we can start to oftentimes form some of those interesting stories. Like, hey, that's different than we thought it would be. Now let's dig down to that next level and understand why. And That's where you then come back to some of these other questions of how do things break down by category, or how might we change the frequency that we're looking at things, or maybe we need to go deeper than our summary statistic in order to be able to really understand what's going on here. Let's talk about one more question on the exploratory side, which is a very important one. What assumptions am I making? Be clear on when we are assuming something about our data or about the context that may not actually pan out that way. And and when we're working with data individually, that's sometimes hard to figure out, right? Because we do this tacitly sometimes where we may not even realize we're making assumptions. And this is one great place to, or one great reason, I should say, to talk through what you're doing with someone else who's less familiar and have them try to poke holes and have them help you identify where you're making assumptions. So if you can identify your assumptions, then you can ask yourself how big of a deal is it if those assumptions are wrong? Sometimes it's not a big deal. Sometimes you might be off a little here, off a little there, but directionally it's not going to impact anything. And that's where we need to let people know about the assumptions, but we can be less upfront with them. In other cases, if you're making an assumption that Turns out not to pan out in that way, and that materially changes what you're going to be talking about or the observation or the direction you recommend. That is a bigger deal, and that's where we need to be very upfront and appropriately caveat everything that's going in so that people who are potentially making decisions based on what you're doing can take that into account. All right, so that was five questions you can ask while you're analyzing data. After the break, we'll discuss questions you can ask when explaining that data to others.
0: October 2019 is going to be an exciting time for fans of Storytelling with Data. First, October 16th will be the last public workshop of the year. Join us live from Chicago for this full-day interactive session where you will learn the fundamentals of better data storytelling from Cole and the entire Storytelling with Data team. For those not able to travel to Chicago, worry not. For the first time ever, this one-day workshop will be live streamed to those who register for this option. Visit storytellingwithdata.com to learn more. Next, October 22nd marks the release of Cole's second book, Storytelling with Data, Let's Practice. This one-of-a-kind immersive learning experience will help you learn or teach others to learn how to become a powerful data storyteller. Let's Practice delivers fresh content, a plethora of new examples, and over 100 hands-on exercises. Pre-order today on Amazon or from your favorite book retailer and be one of the first to get your copy of the soon-to-be bestseller, Let's Practice.
1: Welcome back. So before the break, we talked about five questions you can ask yourself when you're exploring data. Next, I want to shift to explaining data. So you've analyzed your data. You have something interesting you want to say about it. What questions can you ask yourself to help set you up for success when it comes to communicating that data to someone else? First question, what level of polish is warranted? I think people sometimes leave our workshops thinking, oh dear, this means I have to do this for every bit of data that I touch going forward. That is not at all the case. I want to be strategic about where and how we use our energy and our polishing. And if you're presenting something to your colleagues and rough and dirty tool output is okay, then stick with rough and dirty tool output. If you're communicating to senior leaders at your organization, that warrants a different level of polish. And you do wanna assume when you're presenting data, you know that's what they see of everything that was done behind the scenes, the analytical process. So you want that bit that they can see to say good things, right? And that happens indirectly. And it's through a lot of the small, decisions we make about how to show our data and aligning things and graphing it in a smart way, which we'll talk about more, and really taking time to make sure that the takeaway you need your audience to know comes across clearly and easily. And it's by being smart about when we take the time to polish and when we don't worry about that, that you get adequate time when you need to, to be able to make your data and your communications look really professional and put together and being smart, even within a given document about how you spend your energy and time here. For something you know that's going to go in the appendix and maybe someone will look at it or maybe they don't, that again can be the rough and dirty, right? Put tables in the appendices, that's fine, but for the main Main content, the main story, that's where you want to take the time to polish and make what people see say good things about the overall process. Question number two, what biases might your audience have that will cause them to buy in or resist? This is always something good to think through and is another place where grabbing a colleague or two and talking through this so that you can get other people's viewpoints can be really useful. Or if you're thinking, well, I don't know my audience, I don't know what biases they may have, talk to somebody who has communicated with them before or knows them better than you do. Or talk to people who are similar to your audience. Or just step back and think about what do you know about your audience? What motivates them? What biases can you anticipate they might have? And how does that mean you can frame what you're going to talk through in a way that either brings that up so you can address it or walks them through your logic so that they can get around it, right? This is one of those areas where any amount of time you can spend thinking about your audience and how you'll be communicating and work to set yourself up for success, that will be time well spent. Uh, Let's move right on to another question, which is, what visual will show what I need? And there's no single answer to this. Well, actually, there is a single answer to this. The visual you need to use when you're explaining data is a visual that will help you explain that data to your audience. And so this often means just stepping back and being clear about what is it I want to enable my audience to do with the data that I'm showing, and then choose a graph type that's going to help facilitate that. And the best way to figure that out is to graph your data and then iterate and look at a few different views of the data. This both allows you to get to know your data a little better, but also you'll see how different views allow you to see different things more or less easily and can help you isolate one of these aha views for your audience, where you'll be able to do other things to the graph to help them see what they need to see. And if you're ever in doubt, this is another fantastic place to grab a colleague and show them what you've created and have them talk you through their thought process, what they pay attention to, what questions they have, what observations they make. It can be useful to see things through someone else's eyes and see if they're seeing what you need them to see or if you might need to iterate. Another question, how will I be presenting to my audience? Are you there live talking through something? Are you, do you have a screen between you and your audience? You're presenting virtually. We'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to listener Q and A. Are you sending something out that's going to be consumed on its own? Are you maybe putting together materials that someone else is going to be presenting? Be thoughtful in each case, when you're designing your explanatory communications, how is it going to be communicated? Because this will direct you to make different decisions about how you show the data. Right? If you're sending something off, it's going to be consumed on its own. People will be printing it or they'll be looking at it on their monitor in front of them. You can get away with higher density of information there. Versus if you're live in a room, You know, are you handing things out or are you presenting on the big screen? If you're presenting on the big screen, less already looks like more. And people have lower tolerance for density of information on the big screen. Now, there's still tricks you can do, build things up, but in general, you want to keep your slides sparse so that what you're showing on the screen isn't competing with the words that you're saying and that people can adequately pay attention as they need to, to both at the same time. So when you're saying words, there's something on the screen that's reinforcing the words that you're saying or showing it in a picture. And you can think about some of these strategies like building things piece by piece, particularly if you're going to end up with something that feels complicated or heavy. If you're smart about how you position that and how you build up to it, you can keep something that's complicated or heavy from from feeling intimidating to your audience. Talk them through it piece by piece. Another question on the explanatory side, and actually, this is a good question to be asking throughout the process of analyzing your data, explaining your data, which is who can give me good feedback? There's actually an exercise in my new book uh, that walks through uh, considerations when it comes to feedback. Actually, a number of exercises that are around the area of getting feedback at different parts of the process. But you always want to consider, what do you need when it comes to feedback? Is it better to talk to somebody who has context, Or might it be useful to talk to somebody without any context, right? That can sometimes help you identify better words to use or other ways to explain things that may be more accessible depending on who your audience is, right? Do they need to have a background in statistics or can it be someone who's less technical? And you'll get different viewpoints from these different people and have different insights into how you might change either how you show things or how you talk about things depending on your audience and the assumptions you can make about them. All right, so one final cue, this is another one you should be asking yourself every time you're looking at data and analyzing data and explaining data, which is, what can I learn from each process that can inform my work going forward? Right. Every time you explore data, pause and think about, hey, hey, what worked well? Where did I spend the right amount of time? Where did I maybe go down a path that took a little longer than it should have? Maybe I should have cut that off sooner. What good questions did I ask? What questions might I ask in the future? How might I reframe things if I do this again a quarter from now or a year from now? Also think about where you can be efficient, right? Efficiency both in how you explore your data, but also efficient in how you then explain that data to someone else. Now going back to one of the questions we talked about, what's the right level of polish that you need and optimizing given that. Also, were you able to use your data to inform the understanding that you sought or drive the action that you thought needed to happen? That can be a great question to reflect on to consider your relative level of success, right? Because you may have done an awesome analysis and presented it well, but if it's not driving the action that you need, then there's still something to revisit in that process or to get feedback on from others so that you can figure out going forward, how do we not just do a great job when we're exploring data and explaining data, but how do we best use that data to drive smart actions and smart decisions? So in summary, ask smart questions of yourself and others to drive robust analysis and communicate your data in an effective way. Let's shift next to some listener Q&A. Alex writes, how do I collect requirements to create a powerful visualization? This is a broad question, so I'm going to constrain it a bit and assume it's posed about visualizing data in a business setting. This is actually another case where asking smart questions is key. For me, making it about the visualization actually isn't quite the right focus. Rather, it's about understanding what your audience or users are trying to solve for. If you can talk with them to learn more about them and their needs, that's ideal. I often encourage those in analytical roles working with data to consider themselves as consultants, It's not your job to deliver data. It's your job to understand what the people who need the data are trying to solve for so you can provide the right information. And often people don't know exactly what they need. And so a little bit of back and forth or sometimes a lot of back and forth is necessary to make that clear. Why do they need the data? What's it going to help them do? Do they want to use it to show that they should keep doing something the same or that they should change something? Is there broader context to understand? Do they have expectations about what the data will show? Is it going to be an issue if that's not the case? The more you can get to understand not only what your stakeholders want, but also why they want it, the better you can deliver on the need. Then, once you've isolated the specific data of interest, you want to consider what you want to enable your audience to do with the data, right? We talked about this a little earlier, and choose a graph that will make that clear. It's not just about the graph, but also focusing attention and putting words around it to make the takeaway or the story clear. The way to create a powerful visualization isn't to make a sexy graph. It's to visualize data that answers a question or provides insight that wasn't previously known that your audience or stakeholders can do something useful with. This next question was from a workshop participant last week, and I'm going from memory, but it went something like this. You talk about the case a lot where you've analyzed data and you have something you want to say from it, but what do you do when it happens the other way around? You're handed the so-what and asked to collect data that supports it. Specifically, what should you do when the data doesn't support the so-what you've been handed? This can be a challenging scenario, but I'm guessing it's one that many people can relate to. Of course, it depends in part on who's asking and how you can respond to that, but in general, you can treat this as hypothesis testing, where you've been handed a hypothesis and now you have to test it out. When things play out as assumed, there's no issue. The issue is, and the crux of the question posed, when that's not the case. We had some good conversation in the workshop last week around this, and a couple interesting solutions were posed. Uh, One scenario we talked through is where maybe things used to be a certain way, but then changed. So You could anchor the conversation in this place where things align. So Let's say, and I'm just making things up here, the APAC sales manager wants to show sales growth in APAC. So you can start by showing the strong growth two years ago and then shift from there into the current story where that doesn't play out. And even if it doesn't play out in total, this is where coming back to our smart questioning from earlier can be useful. Slice and dice it by various things to see where maybe it does and where it doesn't. This can shift the conversation in interesting ways, where no longer are you saying, you want us to show x and the data says y, but rather here is where the data says x. But in these other places, it doesn't. Now, I mentioned this before, but this of course depends on who is asking, right? Whether and how you can push back. Uh, In cases where you need to push back, right, if really what they're trying to show isn't supported by data, just be thoughtful and careful about how you do so. Consider is there someone influential who you might be able to use as a buffer or or help make the case? And in any case, you certainly want to caveat the data appropriately, right? What you can use the data to say and what you can't, or the limitations. I've really just scratched the surface here. This is not a perfect answer, perhaps or isn't a perfect answer, but I'm curious whether those listening now might have ideas. Is this a situation you've dealt with? Any words of advice or tips for success? If so, email askcole at storytellingwithdata.com. And if we get some good ideas, I'll be sure to follow up with those in a future episode. Janine asks, what should you do differently when presenting data in person versus on video? Any tips for encouraging high engagement on a Skype presentation? So, my ideal scenario for presenting is in person. So if you have a choice, I would say definitely opt for that. You just get a different level of control and influence when you're live with people and can watch their facial responses and read the energy of a room to see when people are tuning in or out and pause or speed up and do other things like that as you see what's happening uh, to set yourself up for success. Because even when we're in the room with others, it's hard There's always the possibility of people picking up their cell phone or opening up their laptop. And this is worse in the virtual environment because you can basically assume this is happening there. You are competing for attention with someone's email when you present to them remotely. Still, there are some things that you can do. One is to use verbal cues when you need someone in your audience or some segment of your audience to tune in. Andy, you're going to care about this next part because it involves resources from your team. Or finance, we're talking about budget next, you're going to want to tune back in. Another strategy that I found can sometimes be useful, and we use this a lot in person, I actually talked about this earlier, is building your graph or story piece by piece. So rather than a full slide that someone can scan through and then turn back their inbox, build a graph, one piece at a time. Start with the skeleton, just the axes and the axis titles. Talk your audience through what you're going to show them. Then add a data point and narrate the relevant context. Then add another and do the same. There's action on the screen and people are curious what will come next. Might be afraid of missing something, which can help keep their attention. Engagement is also sometimes harder in virtual land. So if you're presenting something where you need participation or discussion, see if you can seed that with a person or two ahead of time, just something to get things going and help set the expectations for everyone that your audience isn't meant to be passive consumers, that they're meant to be following and participating. Think more broadly when designing data communications. And we talked about this earlier, but always think ahead to how you'll be presenting. Anticipate how you can set yourself up for success in that specific scenario. Any time you spend thinking about this and planning for it will be time well spent. I think that's a great point to end with. Big thanks to everyone who submitted questions. If you have a question, you can email it to askcole at storytellingwithdata.com. Before we wrap, a couple of quick updates. Space in our final public workshop this year is filling up fast that will take place in Chicago on October 16th. The entire Storytelling with Data team will be there. For that and a couple of other reasons, this is going to be an exciting one to attend. Uh, we are also, for the first time, offering a live stream option so people can tune in from anywhere in the world. Details and registration at storytellingwithdata.com public workshops. Speaking of October, my next book, Storytelling with Data, Let's Practice, is on schedule for October publication. Learn more at storytellingwithdata.com books. Pre-order your copy today. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to this podcast and share it with a friend. And with that, be sure to follow at Story With Data on Twitter and Instagram. Also check out our new LinkedIn page and all the great resources on the blog at storytellingwithdata.com. Thanks for listening.